Welcome to Black Beat Podcast. I'm John Washington, and I'm the CEO and Editor-in-Chief of Flossin Media, and I will be your host for today's show, where we, as always, take an unapologetically Black approach to profiling the people and the stories that are significant in advancing the connectivity of our community. Today, we are honored to introduce Eric K. Ward, a nationally recognized expert on on the relationship between authoritarian movements, hate violence, and preserving inclusive democracy. Eric brings over 30 years of leadership in the community organizing and philanthropy to his role as Western State Center Executive Director and Senior Fellow, f- fellow with Southern Poverty Law Center and, and, and and race forward. Since Eric took the helm in 2017, Western State Center has become a national hub for innovative responses to white nationalism, authoritarianism, and structural inequities toward the world where everyone can live, love, work, and worship, and free from bigotry and hate and fear. He has, he has worked with the leaders from government, law enforcement, business, civil rights groups to establish over 120 task force in six Western states and successfully uh, encourages some, some violent, en- engaged, well, encouraged some violent non-Nazi leaders to renounce racism and violence. Did, did, and did we mention he also is a punk rock artist, <laughs> icon. <laughs> Eric, thank you, and welcome to Black Beat. It's so and great I, to sorry, be with I you, John. That up a little bit, B, but uh, you know that was about the deepest intro that I have ever had to read on the brother, man. It was it was long. It, it was you know <laughs> you know it's like you let other people get at your bios, right? And, and they start they start telling stories, but you know, John, look look. I'm, I, you know, the, the shortest file is I'm, I'm black in America. Right. Yep. And, um, uh, uh, carrying, carrying what our ancestors got us here, uh, to do and, and trying to prep it for, for those who come after, you know, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Eric. Eric, share with us a little bit about your background, man. What, uh, what got you here and, and man, all this impressive background you engage in you like sound like you on the front lines, man. Uh, tell me a little bit about how you got here, man. Who is this guy I got sitting in front of me today? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I uh, grew up in uh, Los Angeles. And, you know, I'm uh, the third generation of, of now what is uh, five generations. Of, of Los Angeles, but my family, like most black folks, uh, comes out of the South, right? And my family fled uh, Kentucky after a lynching in, in the early 1900s. It was the, the lynching of, of Mary Thompson, Mary Denton Thompson uh, of Shepherdsville. And uh, my family uh, fled soon after and eventually made their way uh, to Los Angeles. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles right at the time when the desegregation of public schools uh, was happening, John, and it, it was messy, right? Um, there, there are some things I can point to that I can say 
were really positive pieces, but there are also horror stories of, of uh, what happened, right? Many of us who were bused to other schools, particularly in junior high school, right, found ourselves on the receiving end of, of racial abuse, not from other students, right, but by people who were like driving back and forth to work, right, uh, as we were getting off the school bus. Like these were adults, right, not, not children. And, um, you know, eventually, you know, you, you, you have to stand up for yourself or you have to figure out uh, uh, how to not allow that to happen and, and impact your life. You know, uh, eventually, you know, those choices brought me into the punk community. Now, we should say the punk community in Los Angeles, when I came up in it, was uh, 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 diverse. It's, it's growing diverse again, particularly because of Latino and Pacific Islanders. But they're actually, you know, I was not the only black person in, in the punk community. And punk music in the 80s incorporated hardcore, but it was also reggae, right? It was also ska. Right? You could go see the Red Hot Chili Peppers open up for Grandmaster Flash. It just, <laughs> it wasn't that, right? You could see Los Lobos and X on the stage together. It was just a much more kind of moment where the walls of segregation had fallen for young people. And uh, our parents didn't know what to do about it, right? They, they couldn't reconstitute those walls so quickly. And, you know, kids are always trying to find their way together. And we found our way through, through music. Look, it was uh, at that time that we saw the rise of uh, white power, uh, punks that became uh, neo-Nazi skinheads, uh, that uh, and the drug war in L.A. and the economy eventually drove me uh, up here to Pacific Northwest with friends. Uh, when I landed here, I realized uh, some of those things hadn't changed. There was the Aryan Nations, there was the American Front, right? There was a whole rise of, of neo-Nazism. And as I learned in junior high school, right, I just wasn't going to be bullied and I wasn't going to allow my friends to be bullied. And uh, we found folks in community to build with, to try to find ways to respond. That's what has brought me to this moment. I've spent time in philanthropy. I've spent time working as a national organization, uh, as, as a field organizer. Uh, but at the end of the day, right, uh, I'm not a political guy, really. That's not what I want to do in life. It's, it's not what feeds me. Uh, but I do want a world right? Where all of us get to live, love, work, and worship free from fear. And uh, that, that's why my, my resume sounds so full. I'm constantly trying to find ways to do that like others. Yeah, Eric, damn, boy, I, you, you and I have something in common about that. I remember recently writing an a op-ed piece on uh, just, a, just the very notion of Black people understanding the nature of simply defending themselves, you yes. know? And I don't, you know, and boy, you don't look nothing like the age you say you is back there at the bus. Mm. <laughs> you I'm know, you, you weathered well, you weathered well, my <laughs> brother. You know. yeah. So tell me, Eric, what do you think is the greatest threat posing us in, in relationship to white supremacy in America yeah. today? What do you think is one of the biggest threats we as a community and people fear, you know, should fear or think about or whatever? Well, you know, we, we have two, we have two big, you know, threats, but, but I, you know, and we know one is white supremacy, right? And it is that system that was created, uh, uh, it, it, you know, it predates this country, 
but it's how this country was formed, right? This idea of white superiority, that somehow white people are, are superior based off the biology, right? We, we know that it's, it's false. There's no real definition of biological definition of race that holds up to that. But we had this thing called white supremacy and it was built off of the stolen resources and genocide of native people, 500 years of chattel slavery. And then the third piece we often don't talk about, which is the control of women, primarily the control of women's sexuality, right? Those were the three cornerstones of, of white supremacy. And then we have this thing called white nationalism, which I argue is, is something distinct from white supremacy, right? It's a social movement. And whereas white supremacy seeks to exploit us, right? As black people, as indigenous people, as other people of color, as women, right? White nationalism seeks to get rid of us all together, right? It's not trying to take us back to the bygone days of you know these false memories of gone with the wind, right? It is ethnic cleansing. And both of them, right? The way that they intersect with one another create a critical threat, right? To uh, black people, right? To, to other people of color uh, in this country and to white folks themselves, right? Most white folks, right? The, despite 500 years of white supremacist socialization uh, attempt to break against that, right? Attempt to rebel uh, against that white supremacist uh, uh, conditioning. And white nationalism uh, is a threat to those folks as well. So those are the biggest threats, but it functions, right, John? That, now, now I'm going on, so cut me off, but it functions in really tangible ways. Like I think about COVID-19 right now. Yeah, man. You know, we have this thing. It is killing Black people, right? One in 735 Black people has died from COVID-19 in the last 11 months, right? And I'll say that again, because that number is like hard to hold. One out of every 735 black people has died from COVID in the last 11 months. And for native people, it's one out of every 595, right? COVID has become the third leading cause of death in black America today, right? But it's not just COVID that's killing us, right? It is, right? These folks who are walking around who thinks it's, it's funny walking around in stores without masks, right? Uh, it is these folks, right, within the medical and, and health systems, right, who are functioning off of like unconscious or conscious racial bias. It's vaccination rollouts, right, for those who want it, Black and Indigenous folks who want it, who aren't prioritized because we're being told, well, you're not a big enough population or you don't hold enough critical jobs as if somehow that's our fault instead of the white supremacist natures of the infrastructures in this state. Wow. So COVID-19, right, is, is a huge emergency uh, for black and indigenous communities. It doesn't mean that it's not a threat for Latino communities or it's not a threat for Asians. I'm not saying that they are also not facing struggles. What I'm saying is the impact on black and indigenous communities is so much more significant, right? That it borders, right? I'm not calling this it, but it borders on a biological ethnic cleansing right now. Yeah, man. It's boy, that real. Well, you're speaking some truth here, man. And you know, and and you know what else, Eric? It it it, it's, it sort of stabs you and straps you in this boogeyman scenario. You know, it's yeah. like, and and what's even paradoxical as I'm, you know, shouting out, "May he rest in peace," 
you know, my uncle Charlie, you know, and as he passed away last night, you know, man, the things that we have to now consider, you know, man, we from the South too. We is from Savannah, Georgia. Okay. And, you know, and so, you know, now the thought of that, of my, my uncle dying and, and we, and I step into that next uh, patriarchal uh, place and, um, and I'm going, but damn, you know, people are dying in the black community, especially in Georgia, mostly it's about funerals. Right? right. So we all gathered to go to a funeral. And so now I'm in that paradoxical situation to where now do I go? Because everything in my heart telling me, man, scream out and say, hey, man, you know, you got to stand. You know, you know where that is. You know, his family is home. You got to show up. And, That's you know, right. and I got kids and all that. And then at the same time, we rushing into a thing that's that's killing us. You that's know, right. so he already dead. So, and then what does this do for me and my family? I got to go down. So I got to still mitigate that. But yet they ain't regulating it. I'm here in Oregon. They got needles. I can't even find where a shot is. And I'm in the age bracket to even find it. I can't, not only can I not find where a shot is, they, and now I got to hear the the teachers union lobby on in front of me to try to just mitigate their way to the top of the list and say, well, give us this. So anyway, yeah, man, I'm hearing you about that COVID and I'm hearing you about how systemically, you know, we are affected, you know, from this sense of white supremacy, how it has mitigated us to a disposition that is not favorable for us. So tell me a little bit, Eric, about what is it like when you have to sit in front of one of these neo-Nazi Aryan nation, whoever they is, and, and have these conversations about conversion and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Man, what's that like? Tell yeah. me a little bit about that experience. Well, you know, I, ha I have, you know, in, in my bio, it, it talks about, you know, I, so I should say, you know, in the 90s, I attended white nationalist meetings, right? In the 90s, right, in the midst of the Aryan nations, right, in the midst of like, in the aftermath of the murder of Mulligator Sarah and the hate crimes and, and targeting of black folks and uh, gays and lesbians and others that were happening in, in, in our region, you know, I figured I need to go try to understand what this was about, right? Like, how do you take on something that you don't understand? And so I didn't want to, you know, I wanted to kind of let go of whatever preconceptions I had and try to understand this other social movement. John, the, the thing that I struggled with most was this idea that there could be another social movement. I understand my own social movement, <laughs> social movements around racial justice right you know what i mean like yeah, i, I yeah, give my and, I, and right. I understand their impact and you know i understand how ella baker built i understand how king built i understand how x built i understand how these brothers and sisters kind of built our community but i didn't understand this white nationalist stuff so um and i thought ah, it's probably no different than white supremacy it must be the same thing right <laughs> but but i didn't know and you know and i thought i needed to go find out so i started attending some of these meetings right and that's where i figured out oh no this is something this is something a little bit different right and it is in that work that i happened to meet folks you know you 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 met folks showed up to try to disrupt our meetings or you know to threaten us and, um, you know, we had to figure out how to deal with that in a way that didn't disrupt the communities, didn't disrupt what we were trying to do here, didn't feed a lot of energy into, into that, right? Don't feed the demon kind yeah. of things. Yeah. And through that process, I was lucky enough to experience, right, 
individuals who decided to leave those movements, right? And I love to take a lot of claim for it, but I don't, I don't think I can take that much claim, right? Many of them left because of family, man, because of their children, right? They, they, they were at a point where they just couldn't even themselves imagine raising their children in that kind of toxicity, right? And what I think I presented was a doorway out. I think that was, that was what I got to put into that, right? And in a, in, a, in a sense, John, that I could tell them there was another life, right? That all of these folks who are trying to keep us divided, right? Trying to divide us, these, these, you know, these certain politicians out there trying to divide black people against immigrants and white people against black folks and you know latinos against asians right they they've been trying to divide us so that we can't get to the work right of building the society that we already <laughs> know we want right and uh, they know talk about right talk so about now, now i'm not a preacher right yeah. so I'm, I'm not trying to take over the role of preacher <laughs> yeah. but but so you know, what, what we know, right, is our vision of what the future is. And you see it in these young Black Lives Matters activists, right? You see it in, in these, these, uh, these women who are, who are like using their voices, right? And they tell us, right, they're clear, like, look, we ain't trying to save you. We're trying to save our lives. And you just benefiting from it. So I'm, I'm going to accept that for a second. <laughs> but, the, but, thinking, right? but the truth is, right? that when we, when we break this binary, right, of white supremacy and the white nationalism that is trying to turn it into something new, right, what we find out is we got a lot of problems in common and we got a lot of dreams in common, right? And uh, I, was re- I count myself lucky to be able to watch folks, know folks who renounced white nationalism and got their lives back. Right. And, you know, I watched some of these folks engage in restitutions and, and reparations. Right. The, the ones that most move me are the ones who take no pride in what they were. Right. They don't roman- romanticize it. Right. They're not trying to make money out of it. What they're trying to do is build back their lives. Right. And try to prove that they are worthy to their communities. And uh, I see those folks and I, I count myself lucky uh, uh, to have seen that in my lifetime. It gives me hope. Gives me hope, John. Right on, Eric. And hope is a is a big a big a big part of this, and that's getting to where we need to get to. Eric, tell me why you think uh, the Northwest, the north, the the Western states, the Northern West states are such a hotbed for this type of activity. You know, this type yeah. of activity. Well, here's what we know: uh, the more a place hates black people, the worse problem. You know, the the bigger problem it's got around white nationalism. I mean. Look at, look at the two states, right, that have a history of anti-Blackness, right? Mississippi, right, and Oregon, right? And <laughs> There uh, is a symbiotic relationship between the two of them, isn't that's there? That's right. Uh-huh. You know, when, when, I, when I moved to Oregon, uh, Pearl Hill, who, elder who is, who is crossed, long crossed over, but one of the first things she ever said to me is she said, Eric, you need to understand that Oregon is Northwest Mississippi. And if you understand you're in the Northwest of Mississippi, right? 
you understand the streets and the life that you were walking through. Right. And, you know, I don't say that to, to, to diss the, the strong anti-racist culture that exists here, right? The, the resistance amongst white folks to, to that white supremacy and that white nationalism here is, is staggering. I would not expect to see it, but you see that kind of resistance and that tells me something. But the history of, of, of Oregon, right, and of this region is one of anti-Blackness, right, and hatred and, and genocide of, of, of Native people, right? We live in a state, Oregon, right? Walida, uh, uh, who is a poet, Marshy, an academic, talks about this a lot, right? This state was created to be an all-white state, right? In many ways, it was the white nationalism before there was even white nationalism, right? And it was in the, the uh, original territory constitution that black folks could not even reside here. Now, why couldn't they reside here? Because white pioneers were afraid that black and indigenous folks would get together, right? And create some good troubles, as John right. Lewis likes to call them. Right. Right. And um, it is the unwillingness right, of the state of Oregon and other states in the region, right, to come correct on that history that perpetuates this problem we find ourselves in now. And John, I relay it, I relay this all the time through a story about three or four years ago, maybe almost four years ago at the Blues Festival in Portland, you, you know, you know the, the Blues Festival. The one right? downtown on the waterfront. Downtown right? on the waterfront, there was an alt-right demonstration right? And they picked it. They picked that place specifically, right? Because they knew there were going to be a lot of people there. As I said, they know how to organize too, right? And so they picked that place and they picked the time where they knew it'd be on the evening news. So folks watching, you know, in the suburbs would see all this fighting and police and tear gas and think everything was out of control, right? And I caught this one guy with a camera and he was haranguing this uh, young alt-right, maybe white nationalist activist, right? And he was just haranguing him. He was like shouting at him, why are you here? Nobody wants you here. He said, the mayor doesn't want you here, right? All these protesters don't want you here. I don't want you here. Why are you here? And this young uh, alt-right activist said something that has like stuck with me. And I'm going to paraphrase now because I don't know exactly how he said it, but this is what he said. He said, yeah, you can say you don't want us here. And I've heard that. But the truth is, is Portland is one of the few cities in America with a shrinking black population by percentage and whole number. He said, you can tell us you don't want us here, but yeah. you're doing what we could never get away with. You are actually disappearing the black population of Portland, Oregon. In wow. short, he was calling us hypocrites, right? right. And um, the truth is, if we really want to know as a large community, right? Not as black folks, we ain't responsible for white nationalists being here. Let's right. be clear, neither are indigenous folks, neither right. are Latinos, neither are Asians, right? If we really though wanna know why white nationalism has thrived here, why these paramilitary groups have thrived here, we gotta pick up the mirror, right? And when we pick up the mirror, what we understand is how could they not think that they are welcomed here when black people right, are uh, on nearly every category you measure in Oregon society are the faces at the bottom of the well. How could a white nationalist not think this is prime territory, right? The right. problem is that institutional racism and in policing and health and education 
in leisure, everything you can think of, employment, yeah. right? Yeah. Only signals to these groups that they are welcome. Yes. Yes, Eric, I'll tell you, man. Um, why, why ain't I run into you before this? <laughs> you, know, you know, I hide. You know, you know, you know well, I, I, I try not to, but you know, they pull me out every once in a while. Eric, right. uh, you know, and we've been on similar front lines, but I think that the frame of the battle has has changed since the 60s and back beyond that. I mean, you know, I, I date back in those times that you're talking about busing and all of that. I, you know, I was one of the first group that was able to go into Rutgers University, um, you know, and in, in the front line of that and, and do some of the first things and first that and, you know, and but when we look at Oregon, you know, people used to always say, but it's such a nice place. You know, when you think about Multnomah County and they, they want to seem like they want to do some things for black people, <laughs> you know, it, it seemed like it because we such a few number. But then when you read the history of this state and you understand it, it in my mind, I said real quickly, don't think 100 years made them white people the nature of the ones that came here and found this place that them, that, that lineage is gone. Or it's, it's, it's not in here somewhere. It's just a sleeping dog for a second, you know. But um, right. but now that we got all of those things, so Eric, man, so tell me about the relationship between the punk rock and the shadow dog and all of that. I mean, you know, <laughs> tell me, tell me how that, tell me how that came. Yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah, talk a little you, bit about that. You know, I mean, I grew, you know, I grew up in uh, uh, L.A. in in uh, the late seventies and the early eighties, and yeah. you know, there was. Uh, three types of new music, right? There was uh, there was disco, there was punk, and then <laughs> there was hip hop, right? Yeah. Those were the three emerging things. And we want to listen to the parent, we didn't want to listen to the music of our parents, except for Motown. Let me just put that aside for a second, you know, uh, uh, or Stax, right? But beyond that, we weren't really, you know, we were looking to kind of define ourselves and we had been dispersed, John. Right. I've been dispersed outside of my neighborhood. Right. <laughs> to to like another neighborhood that was not predominantly black and Latino. And so, you know, when you're in junior high school and high school, what you're looking for is tribe. Right. You're looking for identity. And uh, none of us had the same identity. We were from like different places. So the way we found our identity was through music. Right. And that's how we recrafted an identity that we could all belong to. And, um, you know, punk was the most energizing, right? It, it was, uh, you know, it seemed so, the music seemed so fast and, you know, the, the lyrics were kind of political and they seemed shocking to us, right? And our parents didn't like listening to it. And, uh, you know, I will say early on, what anchored me was a band called Bad Brains, right? and Bad Brains were out of DC, right? They were uh, uh, a band of Rastafarians, right? Yeah. Who were the hardcore punk band, right? Of the country. And, um, you know, they would play a couple hardcore songs and then break into a reggae song, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, they were, you know, musicians, right? And they were writers. And that signaled to me early on Right, that and the other reggae and ska and the fact that many of the bands had African American or Latino folks in it, it signaled that it was part of my community. Then that community was attacked by white power skinheads, right, mm -hmm. who were coming into that scene, attempting to tell us 
who could be there and who couldn't, right? And then that was the point where you had to decide, right? Where are you going to leave? Or were you going to fight for your community? And ultimately, we decided to fight for the community in the best way we knew at the time, right? We were young kids. We didn't have adults around us, you know, trying to drop knowledge on us, right? And, and, and wisdom, that didn't come until much later, right? We were kids who were isolated. Our parents were working jobs late into the night, right? We were latchkey kids yeah, just maybe. trying to find our way. So we did what we, what we knew how to do. To, to take care of ourselves and, and, and each other. That's what brought me into that punk scene. You know, now I still play guitar. You know, Snoop Dogg and Ice Cube talk about this, right? We, we all grew up around the same age. And so we were all given like transistor radios. Those were our first radios. They were AM. <laughs> and, you know, they were second generation, right? They were, yeah. you know, refixed by an uncle who, who probably gave them to us. And, you know, on AM, there was uh, the religious station. There was uh, sports talk, probably two sports talk stations. There was the Motown R&B station, right? There was the country station, right? And there were the two top 40s. And so, you know, Ice Cube, Snoop Dogg, Eric Ward talk about growing up listening to country music, right? And uh, particularly those songs that were like stories. Those stories kind of resonated with us. Hmm. So, you know, being in a punk band, I was in a band that, after I left, went on to become famous. It changed his name to Sublime, right? <laughs> but just a story little, of my just life. A little, just a little bug drop on that one. <laughs> Sublime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know. the story of my life, right? After I leave, things, things, things hop, you know? <laughs> uh, and, but, you know, uh, I'm a, I like to write. I like words. Clearly, I like talking. And so I still play guitar. I still sing and write. I'm not, you know, I'm not the greatest musician. I don't think a person has to be a greatest musician. You have to be a good artist, right? And you got to be willing to be vulnerable. And uh, that's what I try to do. I try to be vulnerable with folks. You know, man, uh, you know, don't don't think you go un un unnoticed. I mean, Grand Funk Railroad. And I remember mm. as a kid in high school, man, you know, listening to don't dun, 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 money, you know. Hey, that's <laughs> you know? right. So it wasn't that we, we jumped into that song with hip hop at some point. That we, but, you know, we had to hang out with our buddies because apparently in that era back in the late 70s and 80s, you know, every, it seemed like we got along for a minute there. We sort of bridged some of these gaps, you know, through music. And I was right. real impressed with that because when I think about it, it wasn't that I was always listening to, to run DMC and all them. I was, you know, I was listening to everything that was available to us, right? So rock and roll. Anything was that was good, right? Yeah, I'm trying to tell you. So you don't stand alone on that one in the bridge. So tell me, Eric, where do you see um, Western states going under the Biden administration these days? I mean, where, where do you see yourselves going at this point? Look, we're, we're on, you know, we're, we're not a unicorn and rainbow group, right? We're, we're, we're realistic about uh about where we are. And we're also realistic about how we got here, right? Uh, your generation, John, though our generations aren't that far apart. No, but man, we weren't that you, far apart. We can leave. We, we're not that far. <laughs> we can say, we can say our generation. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, our our generation struggled, generations before it, right? Generations for after us. This is an unfolding process, right? 500 years of white supremacy. Uh, will not change overnight, right? Despite um, our best dreams, but we can make some real, real changes and we have made some real changes. Western State Center thinks, look, 
we got to take on white supremacy and we got to figure out how to manage this white nationalist movement. And this white nationalist movement, particularly here in the West, right, has a big base to recruit from, right? Like if you look at demographics in our region, they are about anywhere from 85 to 95% white, right? right? And that means we can't just leave white folks to be vulnerable, right? Uh, we build, we can build, we can be black centered, we can be black led, right? But we have to build a multiracial movement that is not afraid of white nationalism, right? And we have to model what that future looks like. And I just have to say, like, I'm always trying to look for opportunities. And for Western State Center, we think if there are that many white people in our region, this seems like a good place to try to test that model out. And based off of what we've seen, Right? We have our critiques of organizing here and there. Who doesn't have a critique of organizing or critique of us? But at the end of the day, what we recognize is there is a culture of anti-racism in our region. And we don't always get it right, but we always want to get it right. And that's what matters right now. And we tend to keep diving into that, right? Uh, we want to keep this administration honest, Right. right. Uh, we think it's a better administration than the Trump administration. I, I'm not going to even pretend that there is a, a comparison. And if you think uh, that they're the same thing, you haven't really lived the black life in America. That's what I'm going to tell. <laughs> so I'm going to just say straight I'm, I'm, out. I'm, right. I'm going to open the gate on that one for you. I'll keep right. it. <laughs> yeah. Right. It yeah. is. It is. You know, uh, we are in real serious times. And, but the times we are in are serious, be, not because we've been losing, but because we've been winning, right? Yeah. Black yeah. folks have created yeah. democracy in America, right? And we have made democracy the most radical ideology that has ever existed because it's not just about economics, right? It's about who gets to be people in a society, right? It is a fundamental question around humanness, right? And what it means to, to govern. And uh, we have fought hard for it, right? And I often tell folks, it's Black History Month right now, you know, and uh, if you want to do Black history right, spend the 28 days thanking Black America for making democracy real. Because it is democracy that, you know, and I'm not saying it's great, John, you've heard me before, I, you know, I can critique it too. But the democracy that has been built largely by Black America is the reason we survived Donald Trump, right? Yeah, right. And it's, it is that system that galvanized people on the streets of America, right? A level of activism that we have not seen before. And it doesn't matter whether folks were fighting for democracy. The democracy that our ancestors opened up for us created space for us to hold some of our power in this most critical moment. And that's why I often say, you know, there used to be these shirts that said, not my mama civil rights movement that, you know, we were wearing after Ferguson. And, you know, now I say, you're right, you know, because my mama civil rights movement was really badass, right? They had to function under real white supremacy as the rule of law, right? It wasn't a contested terrain. It was the way everything was. And we should not waste that sacrifice, right? And I don't think these young people today intend to, to, to waste it. So we just need to think about it in this way. We aren't losing. What we're facing is a backlash. And it's a backlash because of 
how much we have won. Right on, Eric. And you know, Eric, I'm, I'm real curious because I sit on a number of boards and committees around the city and all that. And I, you know, I'm constantly hearing the buzzwords getting thrown in there, racial equity, uh, social yes. justice, all of that. Yes, sir. What I don't see is this kind of dialogue going on in what actually an organization who basically deals with that stuff and then bring them into that fabric, weave them into that fabric somehow so that they can help identify more or less what those you know disparities and equities inequities look like. I mean, because in what where the factors are, where they're arriving from, where the derivative from those are from. So do your organization do things like that or do you guys get involved with these large um, uh, uh, committees, uh, you know, like the I-5 uh, widening committees and housing committees, all these things. We hear these conversations constantly. Uh, everywhere I am, I hear this social justice. But listening to you, it seems like your organization seems to have their hand a little bit on the pulse of what this, this, this elusive reality looks like and how it, it how it's structured and how it's interwoven into the fabric do you guys so how would we have people contact you eric to get your organization involved in what they're doing and or at least reach into you and to discuss some of the the, the the opportunities or even profile the opportunity of what it looks like how can we reach you yeah. and how can our reader base reach you so folks can reach us at westernstatecenter.org right and uh, Western State Center, right, is, is evolving. It has been evolving since it was first born, like all of us, right? We continue to learn uh, and grow. But it is an organization that is Black-led, right, that seeks to build a multiracial movement. And we're not the only organization out there. There's some great Black organizations out there. But, but here's the deal. Without direct intervention, right? Black and indigenous communities will always be the faces at the bottom of the well, right? And again, that is, I don't say that to put us in competition, right? With other communities of color, right? This is not, this is not some finite pie in America. We need to lead with an abundance, but within that abundance, we have to be clear. Black mm. and indigenous communities face struggles in the state of Oregon right, that other communities simply do not experience at the same level, right? Maybe Pacific Islander communities, right? But they're also indigenous communities, right? And so Western State Center continues to try to push a narrative that says, look, there is the idea that we either take on white supremacy or white nationalism, we can only do one or one is more important that is thinking that we need to do away with. We have to take on both, right? And we are well-equipped and smart enough in our communities to do so. On the white supremacy side, the equity piece is critically important. And it's why I'm glad to see voices like yours and others, right? Commissioner Jean, uh, Joanne Hardesty, right? Mingus Maps, right? I'm excited to see black leaders, right? Gregory, right? I, I could name names all, all day, John, right? We don't have to agree on every single thing, right? But what we got to agree on is that equity, right? Is the path forward for black and indigenous communities. And that means aligning where we can, 
that means sitting down with one another, even when we're so bad, we don't even want to look at each other, right? <laughs> uh, that, that we sit in spaces. And, and there are spaces like that, right? There's right. the leadership forum, right? There, there was the Black United Front, which is still around, right? right? There are places like that, but there aren't enough, right? We, we, you know, and th- we live in a state that is so filled with anti-Blackness that it gives us 10 organiz- Black organizations and say it's enough, right? Yeah. And right. they give us one staff person and they say that it's enough, but it's not enough. We need hundreds of Black and Indigenous organizations that are taking on new things. And I hope young people listening to this, elders listening to this, to know they have a place, right? There are Black organizations. There's Western State Center, right? There is, there is online. Use our voices right now. Don't allow the state to make Black and Indigenous people invisible. We should be shouting. If one out of 735 Black people had been shot by police in the last 11 months, right? We would still be out there on the streets daily, right? We have to understand COVID is not the enemy, right? Right. COVID is a virus. The enemy that is killing us is unchecked white supremacy. And the only folks who can speak to that and keep folks on track are Black and Indigenous voices. That's why shows like this are so important. There you have it. Boy, Eric, you, you roasted them today, man. I appreciate it. Black History Month, kicking it off. Here we go. You know, and may you rest in peace, Uncle Charlie. Mm. Here going forward, my brother, we're going to carry this ball. And we're going to carry, carry it ball straight to the end zone on this one because now is the time. And Eric, I do appreciate you coming on the show today and, and being a part of us. And hey, man, we look forward to continuing this conversation with you any way, any means necessary. And I'm going to reach back myself at some point in time and have, and have a, a much further discussion with you about how we begin to integrate your basic philosophy over at Western States into some of the systemic developments that we have around housing, around uh, develop, economic development and those things seeing how that all actually becomes a part of how we can integrate that into the fabric. Because to to me, what I'm seeing is real clearly is systems are allowing us to grope and and navigate our own selves through it, but don't want to shine no lights nowhere to assist us and to get into where we need to get to quickly. They prefer us being in the maze, you know? And so, and it seems like Western States has a pathway that (laughs) that they could take a a gate, a door, or something like that, they could show us some form of liberation in this. So I'm really excited about what's to come. And so again, our viewers, thank you again for joining us. And uh, we have Eric here with us today from Western States. And so I appreciate everything in this day that God has to offer us. And my brother, you be safe and be and keep doing what you do. You hear? And anytime you need us, come get us. <laughs> you know, I will, John. I look forward to there, boy. That's all you need to do. <laughs> you know? I, I look forward to sitting with you, and um, I just appreciate you reaching out. I appreciate the conversation. Uh, what an honor it is to meet you, and I, I look forward to more. Much respect to you too, Eric. And uh, you guys have a great afternoon. Thank you again, huh? Bye now. Soon come. Take it away, take it away, feeling too good to me. 
Chillin' all day, all in your space is where I wanna be Here in this room, what did you do? I just can't get enough Too caught up in your love 